Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. It's happy Father's Day to all of us. I'm glad that you're here. I'm thankful that you chose to spend this time with us on this Father's Day Sunday morning. Uh, I, I really am so grateful for you. I was praying for you this morning when I got up and just thankful that you would be with us. And I know that there's some of you watching online. Welcome to you as well. Some of you may be uh, out of the area and you just tune in every week and watch online. Some of you may be traveling today. Some of you may be with your dad. And so we're thankful for all of you today. But I'm thankful that you chose to be here on this Father's Day Sunday morning. And uh, it's just, we don't take that for granted. We're, we're thankful uh, that you would, you would spend some time with us. We think you made a great choice to be here today. You know, I told you last week, I said, hey, I want you to be praying for the next three weeks because we've got some kids going to summer camp over the next three weeks. Well, that started this past week. We sent a group of high school students and leaders to summer camp this past week. Or this past week. They came home Friday. They may still be sleeping. None of, you'll know who went because they have no voice today. They've been yelling and screaming. But I asked them to put a few pictures up there of their experience from this past week. They had incredible worship services each night uh, they played some games during the day, some competitions and things that they were doing all day long. They competed in teams and tribes. They came together with hundreds of students from all over the North Georgia region. And uh, when we give of our tithe dollars to our denominational support, it goes to put on this camp, uh, the facility there, almost 200 acres there with a big, huge lake in the middle. And uh, I'm just so thankful for the youth camp ministry uh, that we're a part of. And I'm thankful for the students that got to go I was listening to some of the stories yesterday uh, from my, one of my own sons who went, but also from Pastor Carson as he was relaying some of the stories from camp of some of our students, just the experiences they had, not just the fun that they had during the day, uh, but some really powerful prayer moments in those services at night, especially on Thursday night. They had a really powerful time of prayer at the end of that service, and several of our students were a part of that prayer time, and God did a really special touch on a special thing in their life, touched their hearts. And so I'm thankful for that. So when you give, you're a part of this. Some of you gave additional monies for scholarship monies to help some of these students go. So I'm thankful for you as well. Moms and dads, thanks for sending your kids to camp and trusting us with them. We've got another group. I think the group this week's almost 30 from our church of, of students and leaders going to middle school camp tomorrow. If you've ever spent a few days with middle school students at an overnight camp, uh, there's no need to shower because we're swimming every day. So it's just... We're just trusting God to, you know, against bacteria and, and things. But uh, it's going to be a really special, special time of middle school camp. Uh, almost 600 middle schoolers. So just pray for the leaders that will be there. And uh, just, again, for another great week. I'm excited about what God may do this week. And then the following week is our grade school camp. We've got another great group from Generations Church going to join uh, folks there at camp. And then we're about three weeks away from vacation Bible school. Everybody say VBS. Uh, VBS is going to be exciting this year. Pastor Madeline and the G Kids team, they've put on a great, they're putting on a great event. They've been preparing and planning. If you've seen rocket ships in all of our lobbies, you know, you've seen that they're, they're planning a, a stellar week. But um, okay, so it's fine. It's, the title is stellar, so it's fine. No, it's, it's good. You're not with me. You're not with me. Maybe the 1030 service will be with me today. It's fine. But uh, they're going to have a great time at Vacation Bible School. It's not too late for you to register your child from, I think, age four all the way up to a rising sixth grader. And it's not too late for you to volunteer. I know they are building a team to help put on a great, great event. So we'd love for you to be a part of Vacation Bible School. Today is Father's Day, obviously. And I know that on a Father's Day or a Mother's Day or any type of holiday like this, it brings a lot of different emotions for a lot of different people. Some of you are sitting on the same row or maybe right next to your father. 
Uh, some of you, your dads, you're, you're sitting here with your kids, perhaps. Some of you, you'll see them later today at a meal or a function. You may get to call or FaceTime. You've already gotten a, a text this morning, perhaps. Some of you, there's some brokenness in the relationship, and you, you don't really spend time talking to your kids or, or talking to your dad, and, and there's some brokenness there. And, and for that, I'm, I'm so sorry. Some of you have already lost a father who may have passed away uh, before this point in time. And so again, I'm, I'm so sorry for that as well. But when you come into a moment like this, there's a lot of different emotions. But we want today to be a celebration of fatherhood and really uh, earthly fathers, but also recognizing the gift that the Heavenly Father has given to us. We're Generations Church. We believe in family. We believe in the family unit. We fight for families. And so we're thankful today for the opportunity to celebrate Father's Day. One of the ways we're going to do that is we've got King of Pops. We've got Popsicles uh, available on the way out. Those are not just for dads. If you're walking out, you see King of Pops, you can get you a Popsicle. We've also got Popsicles upstairs for the kids. So dads, I, we said on Mother's Day, like, mothers got bunt cakes. We were like, moms, we know you wouldn't eat a bunt cake in front of your... Dads would eat a Popsicle and just laugh at their kids. We know that. But we went ahead and gave a Popsicle to your children, too. Uh, other dads, not you guys, other dads, but uh, we've got popsicles upstairs for the kids as well, so we hope you'll grab those on the way up. We do believe uh, that you're, you're great. So uh, today we're going to continue in our Revelation series. You might be thinking, man, we're going to go to Revelation on Father's Day. Yes, we are. So I want you to open your Bible if you've got your Bible with you today. If not, an app. Most of the scriptures will be on the screen, but I would love for you to follow along. We really want you to be able to personalize your own relationship with God, and one of the ways that you do that is engaging God's Word on a regular basis. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to go in just a moment, not quite yet, but to Revelation chapter 2 as we continue in this series we started a few weeks ago called Summer 7. We're looking to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 to seven letters to seven churches that the Apostle John receives from Jesus Christ in a revelation or a vision while he is under house arrest on the Isle of Patmos. He's under house arrest for preaching the gospel, and the whole book of Revelation is a revelation, a vision that he receives to help us understand some things that were happening in that present day that was preparing the church for what was to come. Now, we're living in kind of that church age. We're living in that stage from the beginning of Revelation somewhere into those first few chapters. I had a guy text me this week and say, hey, I'm reading Revelation 5. I really need to understand what I'm reading. And I'm like, well, good luck with that. Because there's some stuff in the book of Revelation that's tough. It's a challenge. And as you read through some of these things, trying to determine what things are to be taken very literally and what things are to be taken figuratively, and I don't mean that it's not true, I mean that we're still trying to understand and to interpret and to discern what God is saying to us through that revelation, through the words of Scripture. And so there's so many things in Revelation that are obscure. There's so many things that we're trying to understand, we don't quite grasp. But I would say, and we've been saying this all series long, you'll hear it at least three or four more times throughout June and July, but we don't want to miss the obvious truths that are there as we search through all of these obscure things. There are some obvious truths that are found here in the book of Revelation, and especially in these letters in Revelation 2 and 3. So we've already been introduced to uh, the church at Ephesus. We've already been introduced to the church at Smyrna. So today we've got a new letter. Again, we're going back to our Blues Clues mailbox here. We've got another letter. We're going to the church at Pergamum. Everybody say Pergamum. Pergamum. Say it one more time because I don't think you said it right. Pergamum. Pergamum. Let's look to this. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 12. It says this, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. 
Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak uh, to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, I don't always know what you're thinking, But I believe right now at least a few of you are thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Father's Day? A few months ago, as we were kind of putting this series together, uh, I I really, we were laying out this series and the timeline for the summer. I immediately, as I was reading this, I said to Pastor Aaron, I kid you not, I said, man, that would be a great message for Father's Day. And, and, And we'll, you know, the proof's in the pudding. We'll see in just a few minutes if it's a great message for Father's Day. But as I was reading through this, I see a great challenge. As a dad, which is one of the highest honors of my life, I, I, I see so many things that challenge dads. But this message is not just for dads today. This message is for all of us as we look to these scriptures within this letter, these verses of scripture that really challenge us and help us to understand what God would have for us. Now, in each of the letters, we've talked about this, there is some part of a, you know, just that a boy, right? You're, you're, you're doing good. I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm, I'm proud of the things that you've done. I'm proud of the effort you're giving. Uh, But there's also some challenge in some of these letters. Each of these letters kind of has a place where Christ says to this church, like, hey, here's some things you need to work on, or here's some things that I'm not proud of. Here's some things I want you to continue to strive to do. And so I want us to dig into a little bit of kind of verse by verse of this letter to the church of Pergamum and see what God might have for us on this Father's Day. So if you're a dad in the room, you're a dad watching online, I encourage you to kind of perk up a little bit. But even for those of us that are not dads, perhaps in the room, I think there's some truth here for all of us. It says this at the beginning of what we were reading. It says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. Now remember, every time you see in these letters, angel, this is talking to the pastor. So we're writing a literal letter to that church and we're delivering it to that church. And it's to be delivered to the pastor so that the pastor could unfold the letter and read this letter to these people that are part of this literal church. So to the pastor of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, we reference each week all of the various things that have some continuity between the letters. So we've already talked about this is a literal letter written to a literal people in a literal church in a literal city at a very specific time. But there are some timeless aspects to the words that are used in this letter. He said to the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it's because it's not the only place in Scripture where it's mentioned. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So when you're reading this, it says that the word of God, now when we're talking about the word of God, we are literally talking about God's word, the Bible, Holy Scripture. We believe that this is a a book that contains other books, other letters, the the stories and collection of things that God has put together over the course of about 1,600 years, 40-plus authors, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, it was compiled 
But we believe that this is not just a history book. There's incredible history here. We believe this is not just a book of poetry. There's incredible poetry here if you love poetry. We believe this is not just stories about faith. There's incredible stories of faith here. We believe it's active. We believe it's not just once it was printed, it goes on a shelf and it sits there. It goes on a coffee table and it sits there. We don't believe that it's just an app on your iPad or your phone. We believe that it's active and alive and it has a purpose today. It can accomplish great things. And what Hebrews chapter 4 tells us, that some of those functions is that it cuts into our life. It cuts into our heart. It judges our thoughts. It judges our attitudes. It judges the actions of our lives. And so what I say on a pretty regular basis, and this is not something that I made up, but when I'm reading the Bible, so often what's happening is that the Bible starts reading me, right? Anybody ever had that experience where you're reading the Bible and you're trying to learn something and understand something, and all of a sudden the Bible starts reading me and go, well, that's not how I live. That's not what I'm supposed to do. The Holy Spirit starts to work in and through me and and challenge me and convict me. And and one of the things that's so powerful is that the Spirit of God that lives inside of me never contradicts the Word of God. And so when I'm reading something, it is bearing witness. It is helping to testify to the things that are going on in my life and to draw those things out that don't reflect the character and nature of God. And so when you're reading a letter to Pergamum, this could be a letter to you. This could be a letter to me. To say, hey, he who has ears, let him hear. I'm coming with an active, alive, double-edged sword that can cut into your heart, cut into your life. If you're trying to figure out what to do and how to live, open the Bible. And I know in present day, the statistics are crazy off the charts, that what they're calling Bible illiteracy is on the rise. It's been on the rise for about four decades, but it is like crazy, crazy over the last 10 years. And here's what that looks like. There's no guilt or condemnation for those in the room, but let me just say to you, if this identifies with anywhere you're at, maybe you use this to kind of change some things. We don't read the Bible anymore. We, 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 we kind of read a, an Instagram quote of one verse, or we see somebody quote something on our Facebook timeline, or, or we memorized a scripture when we were in children's church, or we just kind of go to a one verse type thing. And there's, listen, I, I love it. Anything you're reading is great out of the Bible. But we don't have a systematic way that we are reading God's word on a regular basis to get God's word into our heart. uh, David said in the Psalms, he said, how can a young man or a young woman stay pure? By hiding God's word in our heart. And you're trying to figure out how to live victorious and you're trying to figure out how to live day by day. And you are not using the instrument that God has given to us to judge our thoughts and judge our actions and to say, what is it that I'm supposed to do? And God's like, I'm trying to tell you what to do. I've been screaming it for 2,000 years, but we are not applying God's word because we don't know God's word. And so maybe you're saying, well, where do I start? There's a lot of places that you could start. If you are not reading the Bible anywhere, go to the book of John, open it up to John chapter one, and just start reading. If it takes you a day or it takes you a month, that's okay. But just decide that you're gonna be disciplined enough just to read every single day whatever portion of scripture you can get through and try to understand it. If it's a verse or two at a time, if it's a chapter or two at a time, that's fine. Some of the stories will be familiar to you, but start in the book of John. We have soap guides, which we call scripture, observation, application, and prayer. You read a chapter of scripture, you find one verse within that chapter, you make an observation about it, you kind of write out some application for your own life, and then you pray a prayer. God, help me to put this scripture into practice in my life. 
But whatever it is that you do, you can open up the Bible app and find different devotional guides and reading plans. I encourage you to read the Bible. If this sounds like, well, that's what you're supposed to say, you're a pastor. Well, I'm a pastor. What do you want me to say? But even beyond that, listen to me. I love the Bible. I love the Bible. I didn't always love the Bible because I didn't always understand how all of the stories in the Bible went together. I I wouldn't say I I still understand how all the stories play together. But if you recognize that every story found in the pages of Scripture connects to every other story found in the pages of Scripture, it unlocks. It's like the cheat code. They're all a part of the same narrative. It's not like the Old Testament is disconnected from the New Testament. From the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 where God creates everything that has ever been created all the way to the end of the book of Revelation where he's recreating the perfect, the kind of the new heaven and the new earth because of all the destruction that's happened because of sin. Like God is writing one story found in the pages of scripture through hundreds and hundreds and even thousands and maybe millions of people and all of them connect to me and you, every single one of those stories. There's something we can learn. There's something we can understand. And I encourage if you're not, and I know some of you are like, well, I read my Bible every day, then tune me out for 10 more seconds. But listen to me, I encourage you, open up the Bible and read it. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. Go to the information center today, we'll give you one free of charge. But I would love for you to read the Bible. And if you don't know where to start or you're reading something and you don't understand, ask us and we will help you try to determine what it is that God may be speaking. But we gotta read God's word. Everybody with me? If I sound passionate, it's because I'm passionate. I want us as Generations Church not to fall into this statistical kind of place of biblical illiteracy. I want us to know God's word so that we can do God's word. I want us to know his word. On this Father's Day, I know that it's, it's still a view in most of the world for us to be kind of manly men. So let me speak to the men for just a second. We should never be so tough that God's word can't penetrate our hearts. We should never be so, listen, I pray all the time, Lord, give me a thick skin and a soft heart. But God's word should always be able to penetrate into our hearts. It should always come to a place where we can can be uh, transformed by the word of God and how it works in our lives. And so when we're reading these letters in Revelation 2 and 3, these are red letters. Red letters means that Jesus said it. And when Jesus said it, we should perk up, we should listen, we should pay attention It judges our thoughts, it judges our attitudes, it penetrates into our heart. So as he's penetrating into our hearts, what is he saying? He says this, he says, I know where you live, verse 13, where Satan has his throne. He's not talking about Satan has his throne on your heart, but he's saying, I know the city where you live, Pergamum. Satan has his throne there, we're gonna talk about that. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan He says that again, that Satan lives in their city. So so what are we talking about here? Pergamum was the capital city in Asia for about 200 years. It was a metropolis. It was kind of the first place to really have skyscrapers, like buildings that went up instead of out and wide. And it was a cool city. You got to think New York City, Chicago, maybe Atlanta, the best parts of those cities. This is what Pergamum was back in the time that this letter was written. People moved there to live there. But it was a tough city to live in if you were a Christian, It had these marble thrones in this place of worship in the temple that was built there, kind of overlooking part of the city. 
And these marble thrones were some of them as high as 40 feet high. And there were three of them primarily. There were these other places. They're showing you some pictures of these things now. But there were, there's three of them. One of them was to the god, of, the god Zeus. One was to Athena. And one was to Trajan. Trajan was the first king to pronounce himself as God in this place in the world at that time. And, and one of the, the things that you're reading, this is actually some of the artifacts that have been kind of reconstructed and put back together. This is a replica that's being built in Berlin right now of this kind of temple, and the thrones are being built. They'll, they'll supposedly be open in 2024 as they rebuild these thrones to Zeus and Athena and this king who called himself a god. And so if you were a Christian, and we've talked about this in a couple of other places, last week in Smyrna we talked about it as well, like there was an expectation that you would bow down to these thrones, that you would walk in and worship Caesar. And so if you were a Christian, you would lose your job. Some of them would lose their life. And there's a reference here in the verses that we just read that there was a a guy by the name of Antipas. He was a faithful servant, a faithful witness to the cause of Christ. And he was put to death. Last week, we talked about the pastor of Smyrna, Polycarp, who was, they tried to burn him at the stake in the middle, middle of the city stadium and he didn't die. So then they stabbed him to death after he'd been burning for a while terrible story, a martyr's death. Well, Antipas died maybe an even worse death. He was boiled to death inside of a bull. They put oil in it and they lit it on fire from underneath. And the horns of that bull had holes at the top and the nostrils of that bull had holes. And so the steam from what was taking place inside the bull was coming out and people were cheering and excited that this faithful witness of Christianity was boiling to death for his faith. It was a tough city, tough place to live if you were a person of faith in Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus is writing through the apostle John to the people of Pergamum, he says, listen, there are literal thrones of Satan there. Like, I know where you live. I know what's happening. I know the culture that you live in. I know the things that you're facing but there are still people like Antipas who are willing to, to take a stand. They're standing firm in their faith. They're, they're choosing not to compromise the truth. And I think that's so powerful here. And so Jesus says, I commend you for standing strong even when it got tough. You heard the story or maybe you were there when Antipas died a martyr's death and you didn't give in. But after he commends them, he says this in verse 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who taught, Balak to enti- who, yeah, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. He says to them, you are trying to live in two worlds. You are trying to cling to the things of faith and you are trying to kind of figure out how to integrate these other teachings and these other things that are anti-God, anti-scripture into your life. You've been enticed by sin and here's a few specific ways and he lists Two specific ones, and it kind of branches off into a third. We're going to hit all of those very quickly. The first of them, he says, is you have eaten food sacrificed to idols. Now, we don't necessarily sacrifice to idols anymore. We, we have idols. We may not even recognize them as idols, but there are other things that we worship kind of right alongside of God, other things that we have elevated our, the status of so that it takes its own throne in our lives. We give our time and attention, our treasure, our affection to those things. But in this day and time when this letter was being written, there were actual like graven images, idols that had been built. And those idols required sacrifice just like God in the Old Testament required sacrifice for sin. And so you would come and you would bring an animal and you would kill that animal upon the altar 
if you were doing that to God, then that was great according to the law of the Old Testament. Once Jesus came, that was no longer required for those who believed in salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Those who still clung to the law still brought sacrifice. There are still people that do that even today. But if you sacrificed food to idols, what you were saying is, I am putting my faith and trust in whatever this idol is and whatever this idol represents, this other teaching, something apart from God that brings me salvation, that brings me atonement. And so there's several places that you can read. One of the places that you could go to is Acts chapter 15. There's this church meeting to try to determine how do we enforce what brings salvation? Like, what are we teaching? There's, there's so many different branches of the early church, and they were talking about circumcision. They were talking about sacrifice. Peter had a vision in Acts chapter 10 about what was clean and what was unclean. There's so many incredible stories. I told you, they all fit together about food. But one of the things that they agreed on as the early church is that you don't eat food that was sacrificed to someone other than God. And so he says, some of you, you've been eating that food. Some of you have been declaring by the things that you consume that you are okay with consuming things that promote something other than God. Now, maybe it's not what we take in with our mouths, but maybe on this Father's Day, if you love me, you'll give me enough grace to say some hard things for a second. And I'm saying them to me just like I'm saying to you. What else are we consuming with our eyes and with our ears that we've just decided, yeah, these things seem anti-God, yeah, these things, I mean, they're, they're okay a little bit. They're not quite as bad as some of the other things. So we've just compromised a little bit to consume some things that we know do not honor God, but we're okay to allow them in. This is what he's saying. You're okay to consume food, to, to bring things into your life that are sacrificed to something other than God, that, that promote some other way of being, other way of living. But most scholars believe that this isn't even just in reference to food. It is in reference to food, but it's not just eating that food at your house by yourself, but you got it somewhere else. It's saying, hey, there's some really nasty, vile things that are taking place in this city around some of these thrones and altars and some of the deviance and, and sexual immorality that's taking place in this city, which we're going to unpack in just a second. Like some of you, you ate that food sitting in the room where it was taking place. And some of us, we've just decided like, we're just going to be strong enough to sit in rooms that we shouldn't be in, to go places we shouldn't go. It's like, well, this is, you know, I've got freedom. Grace sets me free, and so I've got freedom. But let me just say to you with all the love in my heart, you can't put yourself in the room with sin over and over and over again and ask God to keep you holy. Like there are some things in holiness that call for us to be set apart, there are some things in our life that we're just called to be set apart, we're called not to do. Not because that's what saves us, but because we have been saved, it is in response to a loving, grace-filled Heavenly Father to say, God, in response to what you've done, I'm going to live as set apart. I'm going, to, I'm going to actually use wisdom here and not consume things that are constantly trying to tarnish the witness of who I am that are constantly pulling me into other rooms and other atmospheres because I don't want to compromise who I am. I, rec I referenced just a minute ago sexual immorality. This was rampant in Pergamum during that time. It was rampant really in this part of the world. It still is even in present day. And when we say the word sexual immorality, what are we talking about? I mean, we know what it is, but what does the Bible say that it is? The, the phrase sexual immorality is used 36 specific times just like that, sexual immorality. It's used 36 specific times in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. 
There are other references to other things that are taking place here that could be sexual immorality in the way that it's defined. But sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of God's original design. And what we believe about Scripture, you may disagree with this, what we believe about Scripture is that it's pretty easy to understand God's original design, that sexual relationships are meant to be between a male husband and his female wife. That's, we believe that's found in the early pages of Scripture, and over and over and over in Scripture, that is affirmed. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, that it's in the law. We see it in Jesus referencing the Old Testament. We see the Apostle Paul referencing Jesus' teaching and referencing the Old Testament teachings. That's what we believe. So any activity, any activity that goes outside the bounds of what God originally designed is sexual immorality. And so when we're talking about that, we're saying, hey, then what's happening in Pergamum and what is happening in Canton And what is happening in the United States and what is happening in the world, there's a ton of sexual immorality. And so how do we as the people of God stand firm without compromise in the midst of that kind of culture? This is what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You still with me? You got real quiet on me. You still with me? All right. Come on. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 5 says this, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. This passage of Scripture right here would set a whole bunch of people free in the world right now. Like that we wouldn't give in to our lust. Lust in and of itself, desire in and of itself is something that is rampant. But we don't have to give in to that because if we are led by the Spirit of God, we can exhibit self-control. We can be led by the Spirit and not just give in to every whim of our flesh. And we should flee all appearances of sexual immorality and learn to control our own bodies in ways that are holy and honorable. That's what we're called to do. God wants us to be sanctified, avoiding sexual morality, controlling our bodies, and not giving in to lust. And in verse 15, he says, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans. Everybody say Nicolaitans. I'm going to make you say a bunch of words here in the last few minutes we got together. So in this specific letter to this specific group of people, John, through the instruction of Christ, this vision he's received... This was, this was specifically talking about a group of people, a, a, a specific kind of track of teaching. One of the places that we can learn what the Nicolaitans believed and what they taught is from a book by a guy named Arrhenius, and he, he lived from like 120 to about 210. He wrote this book called uh, Against Heresies in 180 AD. And, and one of the places, it's in chapter 26 of the first part of the book, he talks about what the Nicolaitans believe, and he says this about them. There's a larger chunk of what he's talking about. This is the line that stood out to me. He said, they lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. They lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. Just do whatever feels good. There's no limits in your pursuit of happiness. He goes on to say that they were indifferent to adultery and other forms of sexual immorality. We've already discussed that. But anyone who devalues a biblical sexual ethic or who encourages you to do what feels good in the moment, no matter the consequences, is not someone worth following. And Jesus says to these people here in Pergamum, he says, some of you are following this teaching that is heresy. It is against 
the word of God. And Jesus said, you've been hanging out with and listening to the wrong people. And at first you stood strong, but the longer you stayed there, the weaker you become. And you're giving them an inch and they're ready to take a mile. That's what he's challenging them with. And here's what I would say to all of you. I'm running out of time. Here's what I'd say to all of us. I lump myself into this. Compromise is just giving an inch. But the, the enemy's not ever happy with an inch. It's just saying like, hey, you know, like I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be in the room. I'm not, I'm not gonna do anything, I'm just gonna be in the room. They're like, yeah, he's a terrible guy, but he's so funny. Like she's not the kind of person I would take home to my parents. <laughs> But I mean, they don't have to meet her yet. We'll just pray the Lord doesn't work in her life, right? And we just, we just give an inch. The enemy's never satisfied with an inch. He wants to seek to destroy your life. To steal everything that's good that you have from God. To kill you. Like to literally ruin your life. To take all of the life that's in you and take it away. But compromise is a result of unrestrained indulgence, like the Nicolaitans. It's not just a problem in Pergamum, it's a problem here too. And what I would say to all of us, again, I lump myself right here in the middle of it, there has to be some restraint. There has to be a line where we are willing to say, I will not go one more step. This is the line in the sand for me. As I read God's word and I internalize God's word, just like David said, how does someone stay pure? How does someone stay holy? How does someone stay right in the presence of God? I'm not going to go one step further. I'm going to hide God's word in my heart and allow it to cut into my heart and judge my thoughts and judge my attitude because I believe there is something God is asking me to do. And it is diametrically opposed to what the enemy is trying to entice me to do. Compromise will destroy your life. Starts innocently enough, it's one little compromise, it becomes another, it becomes a dirty little secret before it becomes a humongous regret. No one knows, or so you think. And some of us have had to learn this the hard way, perhaps. A number of years ago, a man that I respect said something like this, I'm paraphrasing it, but I believe this. He said, God is gracious, and God will give you the time to work out your issues in private between you and him. But if you don't deal with your issues, he will drag you into the public square and make you deal with them in front of everybody else. Compromise will destroy your life eventually. And Jesus, through the Apostle John, is saying to this church in Pergamum, and with all humility that I can muster, I'm saying to you, you got to stop. You got to stop. You got to stop. This is what it says in verse 16. So if you found yourself compromised, repent, therefore. Otherwise, I wouldn't even really have to read these next two. We understand where it goes. If you don't repent, otherwise, something will happen. I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give him some of the hidden man. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Repent, therefore, otherwise. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it's not going to be on the screen, talks about God being patient in the days of Noah. If you know the story of Noah, he built an ark 
so that humanity could be saved, eight people in that boat, his family, as God destroyed the earth in a flood. You're like, what part of God's patience is on display in the total annihilation of the earth? Well, he told Noah the plan at the beginning of the story. He says, hey, I want you to build an ark because I've got to I got to judge the wickedness and sin that's taking place on the earth. And then he was patient as he waited for between 80 and 120 years, scholars said, while the ark was being built. And then Noah and his family get on the ark. And salvation, we, we look at the annihilation, we look at the destruction, we look at the people that pass away. But salvation came to all of humanity because God chose to save humanity through the family of Noah, a man that was righteous and right standing in that day. And God is being patient now. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. But God's being patient. He's patiently waiting because his desire, according to John chapter 3, is that none would perish. He's not a mean, hateful, vindictive God. He is a loving, gracious, heavenly Father. And he is being patient for all of those of us who have compromised in some place in our life And he says, when you repent, here's what happened. I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. It's interesting to me that it's a white stone that's referenced here. Why is that interesting? Because you just saw some pictures of the thrones to these other gods that he referenced in Pergamum. These marble thrones. But every earthly throne will pass away at some point. Every single earthly throne, every single earthly kingdom will pass away. And there will be one throne with one king for one kingdom. And he's saying, if you repent, I'm going to give you a white stone, something that won't tarnish, something that will last, and I'm going to write your new name on it. I love Father's Day. It's easy for me to celebrate Father's Day because I've got an incredible dad. He usually listens to the podcast each week and he'll call me and talk about something specific in the message. So dad, while you're listening, happy Father's Day. I love you so much. But I have a great dad. When I was born, my dad helped my mom pick out my first name. It's Jeremy. It's not Jeremiah. You would think, oh, biblical name. No, it's just Jeremy. But he also gave me my last name, Isaacs. It's his last name. So I I received the day that I was born, a first name that he helped pick out and a last name that he transferred to me, that he, he gave to me. And in this passage of scripture, what we see here on this Father's Day is that you and I have the opportunity to be included in the family of God. That if we have compromised, if we have allowed ourselves to kind of sit in rooms where things are taking place that don't honor the word of God, his character, his nature, who he's calling us to be, we're not setting ourselves apart. He's saying, listen, just just repent. Just repentance is turning away, taking a 180 and going in another direction from the decisions that you've been making. Just just repent. And when you do, I'm going to give to you. I'm going to bestow upon you a new name. I'm going to give you a new identity. You're you're not going to just be one of these people in Pergamum who kind of adheres to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. There's unrestrained indulgence. You're going to have restraint. You're going to be led by the Spirit of God. You're going to actually have some things that you you cling to and hold to, some, some guardrails in your life that keep you away from the destruction that the enemy is trying to entice you with. Like there's some things that you can do. You have the free will to choose the best for yourself, which is the things of God. That's what free will. Free will is not saying like, hey, I can now choose and go do anything I want. Like, yeah, you can. You're right. 
But in the economy of God and the sovereignty of God, free will is saying, God, I have these fleshly desires that take, cause me to want to chase like a million things. But my free will, I'm choosing to take what you're giving to me as the best for me. I'm choosing to believe. I'm choosing by faith to live and trust. And so my hope for all of you today for me is that we don't compromise, not even one inch, because the enemy will never stop at one inch. He wants a mile. He wants it all. God will give you a new name, a new identity. As we open his word, he'll help to give us this hunger and thirst for righteousness, for right standing, for right living. It's not meant to be restrictive. It's meant to be freeing. We can walk with confidence in the way that we live. When I read through this letter in Pergamum, I'm saying to dads in the room, and I'm a dad, I'm holding up a mirror as I say this right now. Be the anchor of faithfulness for your family. Be the anchor of faithfulness for your family. Like, don't, don't cause your kids to wonder what kind of mood dad's in before they come into the room and they're not really sure if they're gonna get angry dad or gentle dad. Don't cause your spouse to, to wonder who you're gonna be and what you're gonna do. Lead your family by faith. Be an anchor. Be a thing, a person that they can depend on, a place that they can always come back to. Be someone who leads and models faithfulness and an example of godly living. When you get it wrong, say to them, I'm sorry, I blew it. I messed up. Please forgive me. And just keep leading your life in the direction and the pursuit of God. That goes for all of us. Dads, lead your homes well. If you've not been doing that, you've been compromising in little areas and little ways, like just repent of those things. Turn away from those things. Have restraint and say, God, I trust you. I believe in you. I want to live according to your will. So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to bow your head right where you're at. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's looking around. It's a hard, hard teaching. Hard story but it doesn't make it any less true. It doesn't make it any less convicting, challenging for all of us to say, God, what is it that you're asking of me? What is it that I can learn from the letter to the church at Pergamum? God, how do you want me to live? How can I honor you? If I'm a dad, how, how do I lead my family well? So I wanna close in two specific ways. First, for all of us, with nobody looking around, a personal decision between you and God, you're gonna pray in just a second out loud with yourself. If you would say, Jeremy, for me, I need to repent. There are some things I've been doing, some things I've been kind of allowing into my life, some little compromises, and I need to repent right now and ask God to forgive me and to help me to establish some new habits and some new disciplines, I'm asking him to continue to be my Lord and my Savior. If you've never prayed that prayer, I'm asking him for the first time. If that's you, nobody's looking around, I'm gonna ask you to lift your hand right now. I wanna pray for you. You can put it right down. Thank you so much. If you lift your hand, you're not the only one. Anybody else? We're gonna pray for you. Now, here's what I want you to do. If you are a dad in the room, I just want you to stand up. You're a dad in the room. I just want you to stand right where you're at. And I'm gonna ask you if you're able to come down front very quickly, just stand right here in front of me. Very quickly, let's come to the front. If you're dad in the room and you can, you're able, I'd love for you just to move right down here, down front. 
dad of any age. We're going to wait on you. We're not in a hurry. We need to start the next service a few minutes late. We'll blame the preacher. I don't know who he is, but we'll blame the preacher. Now, we're going to pray for everybody that lifted their hand to ask for salvation and to repent today. We're going to, we're going to pray that in just a second. But let me just say to all of you, and I, I'm standing with you, like, hey, let's, let's be faithful, men. If your kids are still living at home, model it for them in the home. If your kids live away, if they, if they don't talk to you a lot right now, they don't call as much as you want, they don't return your calls, you're not even really sure how to text them, you think you might have the wrong number. If they don't ever FaceTime you, or maybe they do, maybe you'll see them today. Let's just be the kind of men that model godliness and faithfulness. Wherever there's been hurt, let's forgive quickly. Let's ask for forgiveness, but let's be an anchor for our families. Let's not compromise, not even one inch. Can we commit ourselves to do that? I'm gonna ask you just to put your hand over your heart. We're gonna pray. We're not gonna do the Pledge of Allegiance. We're gonna pray, okay? And we're gonna say, God, I want you to guard my heart. I want you to protect my heart. I wanna hide God's word in my heart so that I can be be the kind of father, the kind of man that you're calling me to be. Let's pray right now. God, we love you so much and we thank you today for all that's been said and done. I pray first for every single person that acknowledged their need for you to be the Lord and Savior of their life. They've repented now of any place of compromise in their life. So God, right now, I pray for the conviction that you bring, God, to be strong in all of our hearts, that everything that doesn't reflect you would be called out in our lives and that, God, we would give those things to you and that you would replace them with more and more of your character and your nature. So, God, we thank you for salvation. But now I pray for every single father, every father in this room, every father watching online. Our hands are over our hearts because we want you to guard our hearts, guard our lives. Let us be an anchor for our family. Let us be strong, faith-filled, firm for our families. God, for everyone that's got kids at home, I pray right now that that home would be a place of peace and rest and that they would model it in their homes. For those whose kids live away, God, that they would would continue to pursue relationship and to the very best of their ability, be the kind of man, the kind of father, the kind of husband that honors and glorifies you and they would continue to help from one generation to the next to commend your works to those that are coming after them. And God, I pray that here at Generations Church, you would help us to be the kind of men that you can trust to lead families well. God will give you all the glory and all the honor for everything that you have done and everything that you will do. Don't let us compromise not one inch. Let us stand firm. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.